At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 19, The Cold War in Scandinavia, 1945 to 1970. This episode will cover Scandinavia during the early to mid-Cold War, 1945 to 1970, from the geopolitical and economic perspective. As the podcast progresses, I will make a follow-up episode that will cover Scandinavia in the late Cold War. I want to apologize beforehand for any mispronunciations I may make. I am not a native speaker of Finnish, Norwegian, Danish, or Swedish. This episode was fan-requested, and I hope our Scandinavian fans will enjoy the show, as 25% of our audience is in Scandinavia. In this episode, I will provide a broad overview of the region during the period and then drill down on each of the specific nations, starting with Iceland and ending with Finland. Scandinavia, like the Mediterranean, which we covered in episode 10, had a similar history of political and economic cooperation and division and conflict. From 1397 to 1520, Scandinavia was united through a series of marriage alliances known as the Kalmar Union. Nevertheless, despite being under one monarch, the state remained independent, states remained independent, which gave rise to conflict that saw the dissolution of the Union in 1523. Sweden, for a time in the 18th century, almost recreated the Scandinavian Union, but was ultimately defeated by Russia and lost control of modern-day Finland. During the Napoleonic Wars, the states of Scandinavia were divided and even fought against each other. However, later in the 19th century, Scandinavia formed a monetary union which fixed currencies and there was a lot of argument in favor of a new Scandinavian political unity, similar to what had happened with the creation of Germany and Italy in the mid to late 19th century. World War I saw Scandinavian neutrality, although Finland, which was a part of the Russian Empire, participated. Finland did, however, gain its independence because of the Russian Revolution of 1917. World War II once again divided Scandinavia. The Germans occupied Denmark and Norway, the Allies occupied Iceland, and Finland became a minor Axis power. This division was continued during the Cold War. Scandinavia, like the Mediterranean, covered a range of different positions from NATO members like Denmark and Norway, reluctant NATO allies, uh, Iceland, neutral Sweden, and a Soviet satellite state, Finland. However, despite these divisions, there were some attempts at political and economic unity. After the war, it was clear to many around the world, including the Scandinavians, that another great power conflict was emerging between the Western allies and the Soviet Union. Therefore, Sweden proposed a Scandinavian defense union. Sweden hoped to maintain the region's neutrality along with establishing a viable defensive alliance that would deter any Soviet aggression but keep Norway and Denmark from joining any Anglo-American alliance, thus not provoking the Soviets, and hopefully keeping the region out of another world war. 
However, the Soviet Union rejected Finland's membership in the organization because they said that it would violate the 1948 Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation, and Mutual Assistance. Norway believed that any alliance based on Norway, Sweden, and Denmark couldn't realistically stop a Soviet invasion of Scandinavia and instead opted to join NATO. Denmark was still open to signing a defensive pact with Sweden, but Stockholm saw little value in an alliance with Denmark and decided to maintain its traditional policy of neutrality. Denmark subsequently joined NATO versus continued what it saw as the failed policy of neutrality. Despite the failure of the defensive alliance, economically the region formed the Nordic Council in 1952 to promote the cooperation between the five Nordic countries, which created a common labor market with free movement across borders without a passport system. In today's world, it's hard to, re to remember, but Iceland, despite its long history of isolation, held a very strategic position in the mid to the late 20th century. When World War II began, Iceland was a sovereign kingdom in a union with Denmark, and King Christian X was the head of state. The country declared itself to be neutral in the war. This was also the course taken by Denmark. Denmark, however, was conquered by the Germans in 1940. France quickly followed a few weeks later, and only Britain fought on alone. The German Navy had a clear and simple strategic objective with potential war-winning results, defeat the UK by severing her maritime trade. It was this battle, begun in earnest in the late summer of 1940, that Churchill dubbed the Battle of the Atlantic. It was, in fact, the only time in the war when the Germans were within a measurable distance of victory at sea. Therefore, Iceland, with its position in the North Atlantic, besides Great Britain's northern trade routes with America, Canada, and later the Soviet Union, became a vital strategic location for ships and patrol planes to defend the, its convoys and to attack German U-boats. Iceland declined an offer of British protection a month after the occupation of Denmark by Germany in 1940. The British subsequently invaded Iceland, violating the country's neutrality over the formal protest of Iceland's regent. Royal Marines received no resistance. Whatever facilities were available were offered, and Iceland maintained full cooperation with the Allies throughout the war. In 1941, the British arranged for the United States to take over the occupation of the country so that British troops could be used in other arenas of the war. After pressure from the British, the Icelandic government eventually agreed to U.S. occupation, and on June 7, 1941, 5,000 U.S. troops arrived in Iceland. At the height of the war, U.S. forces in Iceland reached 50,000. The impact of these friendly armed newcomers in an isolated country of 120 of 120,000 was bound to have mixed results. One positive effect was that foreign military presence provided work. Many Icelanders often obtained well-paid construction jobs. The U.S. Army built whole villages in and around Reykjavik, which at times had more military personnel around than Icelandic men. Although the relations generally were good, any foreign military presence, however benign and protective, creates tensions as well as opportunity. There were, inevitably, some incidences, including a few involving shooting of civilians. There were also some undesirable aspects, such as young American troops looking for sex. Furthermore, economic measures were inadequate to contain excessive wage increases and high inflation. The war created a social upheaval in Iceland, particularly with heavy migration to Reykjavik, on the other hand, new trade and economic ties with the United States were created. In addition, beginning with the war, a steady flow of Icelandic students received quality university education in the United States. Many enjoyed generous scholarships at American universities.
The United States supported the founding of the Republic of Iceland in 1944 and promised to withdraw its troops once the war ended, but failed to do so when Nazi Germany surrendered in May 1945. Towards the end of the war, the Icelandic government declined Allied proposals to declare war on Germany to become a founding member of the UN. For this reason, Iceland's membership in the UN was delayed for a year. As World War II was winding down, the United States tried to persuade Icelandic statesmen to agree to permanent American military bases in Iceland. The pro-Western Icelandic prime minister considered such an agreement impossible at the time due to public opposition and rejected the proposal. In September 1946, the United States and Iceland negotiated over a more moderate basing agreement. These negotiations concluded in October 1946 as the so-called Kevik Agreement. This interim agreement stipulated that the United States military would leave the country within six months and that the U.S.-built US Kivik airport would become the property of the Icelandic government. In 1948, a sense of greater global turmoil and internal threat led Icelandic statesmen to reconsider Iceland's security arrangements. The Czech coup in February, uh, February 1948 made another world war seem more possible and made a communist coup in Iceland seem more plausible. The U.S. and USSR competed for influence in Iceland. Iceland traded considerably with the USSR for the first few decades of the Cold War, and Moscow had close ties to Iceland's Communist Party. Soviet submarines were seen as a threat to the Atlantic sea lanes of communication and viewed with the utmost seriousness, particularly since all defense plans of the European allies depended on reinforcements and supplies from the United States. Just like in World War II, Iceland would be a critical base for patrol vessels and aircraft to protect Allied convoys and to hunt Soviet submarines. In regards to domestic communists, the U.S. Embassy started in the fall of 1948 to compile a list of Icelanders suspected of supporting communism. By early 1949, there were 900 names on the list. However, many of the names were on the list due to clerical errors. The Icelanders themselves, though, were worried about the local Communist Party and Icelandic courts approved warrants by the Icelandic police to tap the phones of prominent Icelandic communists on six occasions during the period 1949 to 1968. Thirty-two homes of army base opponents and socialists, some of whom had been parliamentarians at the time, were tapped, as well as socialist parties and newspapers, trade unions, and various political and cultural associations. Iceland's elites and other re had other reasons for joining NATO as well. Iceland wanted the economic investment and lucrative trade deals that would come with NATO membership and the basing of American military forces on the island. In 1949, officials in the U.S. Embassy in Iceland contemplated interfering in Iceland's domestic politics covertly in order to diminish the influence of the Icelandic Socialist Party and to make Icelanders more willing to allow a U.S. military base in Iceland. One U.S. official proposed that the U.S. fund pro-Western political parties in Iceland. The U.S. ambassador to Iceland decided against this because the political risks were too high. If the operation had been exposed, the prospects of a military base in Iceland would have been low, owing to what the ambassador described as the fierce nationalism, independence, and sensitivity of the Icelanders. The ambassador noted that it was safer not for them to deceive the Icelanders, but to engage with the Icelanders above the board and trust that they would come to lean westward. The Icelandic coalition government of the Independence Party, the Centrist Progressive Party, and the Social Democrats began to look for security guarantees for Iceland. 
Basing the U.S. military on Icelandic so- soil was domestically unfeasible at the time, so the options were between a Scandinavian defense union and NATO. When negotiations for the Scandinavian defense union fell apart, Iceland followed Denmark and Norway into NATO. Iceland's parliament approved Iceland's NATO membership on the 30th of March, 1949, with 37 votes in favor and 13 against. The Socialist Party was the only Icelandic political party opposed to NATO membership. Large protests occurred outside of parliament in downtown Reykjavik, where fighting broke out and soon escalated into a riot. Iceland joined NATO with other NATO allies, understanding that Iceland had no military and that there would be no military bases in the country during peacetime. This condition, however, was informal and nowhere explicitly stated in the agreement. With the outbreak of the Korean War, Icelandic statesmen began to seriously contemplate U.S. military basing in Iceland as a formal security guarantee. In May 1951, a new agreement was signed between Iceland and the United States through NATO. Per this defense treaty, the United States accepted full responsibility for the defense of Iceland for an unspecified period of time. This new agreement annulled the Kivik Agreement. As a result of the agreement, the United States maintained several thousand troops and several jet interceptors at the Kivik Air Base. This would become the Icelandic Defense Force. The U.S. also agreed to not house nuclear weapons in Iceland during peacetime as well. The U.S. military would not leave the country until 2006. NATO's strategy was to prevent any hostile Soviet air force or sub Force transit through the Greenland-UK North Atlantic Gap. The primary mission of the 3,000 or so military personnel at Kavik became anti-submarine warfare and air defense. A critical part of this defense system was the so-called sound surveillance system consisting of sound detecting devices placed on the ocean floor east and west of Iceland and transmitting data to Kavik to listen for enemy submarines. This was supplemented by an aerial surveillance squadron of P-3 Orion maritime patrol aircraft. The United States government once considered stockpiling nuclear weapons in Iceland without the government's knowledge or permission, but backed off the plan after American diplomats objected. At the end of the 1950s, the U.S. Navy ordered construction of a facility that would house nuclear death charges, the Mark 101 Lula nuclear death charge bomb which the Navy could have deployed to a storage site in Iceland in the event of World War III. It was a 15-kiloton bomb, an airdropped weapon designed to use by all Navy aircraft for the purpose of nuking enemy submarines underwater. The U.S. ambassador argued that if Reykjavik found out about a secret nuclear deployment, it could leave NATO altogether and become a public relations nightmare. To make the U.S. military presence in Iceland more palatable, the United States provided Icelanders with extensive economic assistance and diplomatic backing. The U.S. also condoned an openly exclusionary policies of the Icelandic government towards off-base movement of U.S. soldiers and met the Icelandic government's request that no black soldiers be stationed in Iceland for the purposes of protecting Icelandic women and the preservation of a homogeneous Icelandic culture. The ban on the stationing of black soldiers was put to an end in the mid-1960s. Interactions between U.S. soldiers and Icelandic women were highly contentious in Iceland. The Icelandic government consequently requested curfews and other limits to U.S. soldiers' freedom of movement in Iceland. Many Icelandic businesses even banned U.S. soldiers from entry. Icelandic organizations also declared warnings about the nefarious influences of U.S. soldiers. 
Dozens of Icelandic girls were incarcerated for having relations with U.S. soldiers. Moreover, American TV and radio intended for the soldiers at the U.S. base caused consternations in some circles who saw it as an undesirable influence on Icelandic culture. As part of the agreement, the Icelanders would not carry any costs of the military base and could unilaterally annul the agreement at any point. The Americans furthermore provided financial support for the running of the Kavik airport. In exchange, the Americans were allowed to keep 3,900 troops on Icelandic soil, uh, access territory in Kavik, and four radar stations. Iceland's provisions of territory for the base and all the associated costs with the military counted towards Iceland's contribution to NATO, which meant, in effect, that Iceland did not have to pay anything into NATO's collective funds. In all, beyond its strategic location, Iceland did not contribute much to the NATO alliance. Iceland was a troublesome member of NATO for much of the Cold War, often described as, quote, reluctant or, quote, rebellious. During each of the Cod Wars, fishing disputes with the UK, Icelandic officials explicitly or implicitly threatened to withdraw from NATO and expel U.S. forces unless the disputes were resolved favorably. Iceland prospered greatly during the war, and the immediate post-war period was followed by substantial economic growth driven by industrialization of the fishing industry and the Marshall Plan program, through which the Icelanders received by far the most aid per capita from the United States of any European country. Although a NATO member, the country continued to trade with the Soviet Union, and domestic opposition to the U.S. military presence was strong. There were two serious attempts to abrogate the bilateral defense agreement with the United States during the tenure of the left-wing governments of 1956 to 1958 and 1971 to 1974. These attempts failed, though. The Hungarian uprising of 1956 made it unfeasible for the 1956-58 government to make radical changes to Iceland's security arrangements. While the 1971-1974 government's rhetoric was consistent with its desire to expel U.S. forces from Iceland, the two moderate parties in the government were divided on the matter, though the Socialist Party was strongly in favor. In short, the abandonment of Icelandic neutrality was engineered by the United States and local elites with no popular mandate. However, Iceland benefited greatly from its membership but provided very little to the alliance and, if anything, was basically being paid to remain a member as NATO needed Iceland more than Iceland needed NATO. Like Iceland, Denmark had been occupied in 1940. The Germans invaded Denmark for a jumping-off point for their invasion of Norway. As such, many Danish politicians saw neutrality as a failure and opted for joining the NATO alliance. Denmark was concerned about the communist coup in Prague, just like Iceland. Moreover, like many nations in Europe, they had a domestic communist party funded by Moscow. However, years of neutrality made Denmark a cautious NATO ally. Many Danish politicians would have preferred continued neutrality despite the dangers of Soviet policies. Denmark banned foreign bases, except for Greenland, and nuclear weapons on its soil. Denmark, through the 1950s and 1960s, provided a minimum contribution to the common defense of the alliance and staunchly opposed NATO operations outside of the North Atlantic. Denmark, moreover, supported detente and any efforts to lower tensions between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Nevertheless, privately, Denmark took a more pro-NATO position. Denmark allowed the U.S., for example, to secretly house nuclear weapons in Greenland, despite the government's position on not allowing nuclear weapons on Danish soil. 
Eskimos were also forcefully removed uh, for the expansion of U.S. bases in Greenland. Like Iceland, Denmark held a strategic position geographically. The only way out of the Baltic Sea was through Danish waters. Therefore, NATO wanted to insert a, quote, stopper into the Baltic Sea to prevent the Soviet fleet from exiting it. In case of a war, the straits would be closed off by means of minefields. This would have left the Soviet Union with no other choice than to remove those minefields. However, this would have constituted a breach of international law because both passages are international waterways. To secure the Danish Straits further, two forts were built during the 1950s. The Langsland Fort and the Stens Fort, together with the Bangsbro Fort, an old German World War II fort in northern Jutland, with these forts, it was possible to control and defend the Danish Straits. No Warsaw Pact transport or warship could pass through the Danish waters without being observed or even fired upon. As an example of this, the first ship that carried missiles to Cuba in 1962 were observed from the Langsdale Fort. Because of this strategic position, Denmark was an obvious target for the Warsaw Pact. Per Soviet plans, forces from East Germany and Poland would land in the Fisk Bay, and large armored forces would advance through West Germany and, along the, and among other places into Jutland from the south. During this attack, nuclear and chemical weapons were planned to be used extensively. In summation, Denmark, through a policy of realpolitik and small state values, was able to balance its military integration slash deterrence with NATO membership while maintaining a level of independence, keeping foreign bases and nuclear weapons out of the Danish metropole, which maintained domestic tranquility and looked to diffuse tensions in the Nordic area through cooperation and through the Nordic Council and with the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union through detente. Like Denmark, Norway declared itself neutral at the outbreak of the war in 1939, but was still attacked by Germany in 1940. Norway's natural resources and its strategic location in the North Atlantic, close to the Allied shipping routes from the United States and Canada, made Norway a German target. The Norwegian government initially resisted the German invaders, but after a few months the country was occupied, although the king and the government continued to fight from the United Kingdom. The German occupation forces, together with a puppet government, were harassed by a widespread resistance movement, the Home Front, which carried out the sabotage and valuable intelligence activities. The northernmost part of uh, Norway, Finnmark, was liberated by the Soviet army in 1944-1945. It was an important goal to capture this area as daily attacks were carried out by German bombers stationed there against Murmansk, where military equipment for the Red Army was unloaded from convoy ships. Norway did attempt a policy of opening channels to the Soviets in 1948, but they seemed to achieve very little in convincing Moscow of Oslo's good intentions and only alienated Great Britain and the United States. Norway's NATO membership was intended to prevent the Soviet Union from pressuring and attacking Norway. At the same time, Norway did not want to provoke its giant neighbor more than necessary. This meant that Norway needed a flexible and trustworthy defense policy. Thus, Norway did not allow foreign powers to have military bases on Norwegian territory except if Norway was attacked or threatened with attacks. Norway, like Iceland and Denmark, also refused its partners from deploying nuclear weapons in Norway during peacetime. This did cause some friction with the United States and other NATO allies, 
like Germany and Great Britain, who felt that Norway and Denmark were taking cover under the American nuclear umbrella, while at the same time being hypocritical with not allowing U.S. forces to store weapons on their soil. The Norwegian military, on the other hand, argued into the 1960s for the deployment of nuclear weapons to Norway or the development of Norway's own nuclear capability. The Norwegian military saw nuclear weapons as a modern necessity, like tanks or jet planes. Norway's politicians, however, disagreed, and Norway never became a nuclear power. Norway also voiced strong opposition to German rearmament and participation in NATO. German troops in Norway training for war games were not allowed to wear their uniforms, and German ships were were barred from visiting Norwegian ports until 1979. Norway also opposed Greece, Spain, and Turkey's membership in NATO, given their undemocratic governments. Moreover, they thought that including Greece and Turkey might provoke the Soviet Union. Norway, like Denmark, opposed NATO involvement outside of the North Atlantic and even reluctantly helped the UN force in Korea by only sending a frontline hospital unit, despite their extensive expertise in winter warfare. Over issues of decolonization, Norway also clashed with the French and Portugal and and grew increasingly critical of U.S. policies in Vietnam and Latin America. Norway also strongly opposed South Africa because of its apartheid regime. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union was considered Norway's main enemy. The Russian Kola Peninsula opposite the Norwegian border was developed as one of the most comprehensive and highly fortified military centers in the world. The ice-free military harbors housed the Soviet Northern Fleet with seven naval bases, several shipyards, air bases, and factories producing military equipment. The area was home to more than 200 submarines, most of them powered by nuclear reactors. The main sea route from the Kola Peninsula to the Atlantic Sea was also along the Norwegian coast. It formed the access route to the coastal areas of the United States and the Western European countries, as well as the American supply line to Europe in the case of war. Therefore, like in the Second World War, the defense of the region would have been a prime Soviet concern, putting Finnmark at risk. Thus, Norway kept a small defensive force there with few aircraft, not to provoke the Soviets or cause any misunderstandings. Moreover, the Norwegian military leaders regarded the population of Finnmark as potentially unreliable and did not trust that they would be willing to defend their country against intruders because the area's special ethnic and political composition, specifically Samai people and a higher number of communist sympathizers there than elsewhere in the country. The Norwegian government's plans for the defense of Finnmark against the Soviet Union in case of war were based on using scorched earth tactics in the event of Soviets crossing the border, and it was considered a buffer zone, where Norwegian forces would fight a rearguard action until help arrived from Britain and the United States. Northern Norway in particular thus became a cornerstone in the NATO defense system, and it resulted in close military cooperation between the United States and Norway. The U.S. offered massive economic support for the construction of air bases, harbors, arms reserves, fortifications, and monitoring as well as warning systems, as well as support for fully motorized Norwegian military forces. NATO membership, coupled with the experiences from the war, led to an unprecedented buildup of the Norwegian armed forces. In 1952 and 1953, the defense budget amounted to 30% of the state budget and 4.7% of Norway's domestic product. This period also marked the start of a golden era for universal conscription for men in Norway. At the peak, 
period, more than 350,000 Norwegians were in part of the Norwegian military forces. Since 1949, Norway has also been an important contributor to UN peacekeeping missions. More than 40,000 Norwegian men and women have served for the UN. Norway's merchant marine also played a role in the Cold War. As one of the world's largest in the outbreak of a war, it would have been needed to ferry troops and resources from America across the Atlantic to Europe. Moreover, they played a role in gathering intelligence about the Soviet fleet in both European waters and the Far East. In a final estimation, like Denmark, Norway utilized the NATO alliance to safeguard its interest and deter the Soviet threat, yet at the same time didn't allow Norway to be entangled in conflicts outside of Scandinavia like the Korean War. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends or spread the word about us on Facebook or Twitter. As you can imagine, me and my colleague invest a lot of our personal time and resources into bringing you the show. Buying books, recording equipment, hosting the podcast and the website all adds up. The average episode takes about 10 to 15 hours of work to create. Don't get me wrong, I love making this show, but a little financial help would help us produce a better show and help lighten the burden on us just a little. So if you enjoy the show, please help support us through Patreon on the website so that we can keep the show coming to you. Even a small donation can go a long way. You can support us through the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Moreover, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this was a fan-requested episode. So if you have a topic that you want to hear about, feel free to email us through the website or tweet us. Additionally, when you visit the website, be sure to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Now back to the show. Unlike Iceland, Denmark, or Norway, Sweden had been untouched by war since 1814. During World War I, Sweden declared neutrality. This was also the case during World War II, except for the Russo-Finnish Winter War, in which Sweden declared itself a non-belligerent, but allowed substantial volunteer units from its army and air force to deploy in support of Finnish forces. Sweden was not occupied by German or other foreign forces during the Second World War. This was probably one of the main reasons for its exceptional prosperity after the war, backed up by American economic support through the Marshall Plan. Sweden maintained its policy of neutrality after World War II, despite substantial cooperations with the West. During the early Cold War, this policy was maintained, even though Sweden's leaders understood that neutrality would probably fail in a Third World War. The aim of the policy was to avoid the violent initial nuclear exchange between the two superpowers. Sweden's strategic location on the Baltic Sea, close to Polish and Soviet naval bases, its long border with Finland, a Soviet satellite, and its rich natural resources put it on the front lines of any future war between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Control of this border led to many confrontations between Swedish and Soviet aircraft in the Baltic Sea, including the downing of a Swedish surveillance aircraft in 1952, the DC-3 affair. However, Sweden's neutrality was an armed neutrality. The eastern coast of Sweden probably had the most powerful coastal defense system in the world. The system consisted of coastal artillery, submarines, warships, and aircraft. No less than 90 heavy guns with large underground facilities were strategically located along the coast, together with a large number of bunkers and pillboxes. 
For a long time, Sweden had the fourth largest air force in the world, with no less than 30 air bases and a large number of smaller hangars, mainly connected to mortarways that could be used as runways in case of a war. Sweden even quietly pursued an aggressive independent nuclear weapons program involving plutonium production and nuclear secrets acquisitions from all nuclear powers until the 1960s, when it was abandoned as cost prohibitive. Sweden maintained a dual approach to nuclear weapons. Publicly, the strict neutrality policy was forcefully maintained, but unofficially, strong ties were crept with the U.S., and Sweden even approached the U.S. about the prospects of buying nuclear weapons. Sweden, despite being in the Western camp ideologically, was also extremely critical of the United States, Soviet Union, and South Africa, and a number of other dictatorships during the Cold War. Sweden wanted to appear to its own people, the Soviet Union, and the world as no one's puppet. During the 1960s, Sweden also became more interested in issues of the developing world, as well as issues around disarmament. However, many on the Swedish political right were critical of the left's protests around American involvement in Vietnam. They argued that the left was using the issue to gain popular support, but was risking Swedish neutrality. Nevertheless, in case of a general war between the Soviet Union and NATO, Sweden planned for a Soviet invasion and assisting NATO. Sweden had no plans around defending the country from a NATO intervention. In 1949, despite Swedish neutrality, Sweden allowed the British access to Sweden's defense plans. Britain kept the rest of NATO informed and advised the Swedes on how the West would come to their assistance if Sweden were attacked. Sweden then took the initiative to conduct joint planning with Norway and Denmark on technical military cooperation in the event of a war. By 1951, however, Sweden had lost some of its initial interest in defense cooperation with Denmark and Norway because it had begun to develop direct defense contacts with the U.S. The American government had tried vainly in the late 1940s and early 1950s to persuade Sweden to join NATO. However, the United States realized the benefits of Swedish neutrality and the drawbacks of Sweden joining NATO. Had Sweden joined NATO at the time, this would probably would have caused the Soviet Union to tighten its grip on the already subdued Finland, possibly even annexing it. This would not have benefited Sweden either, who would have once again have its own land border with the Soviet Union. Therefore, the U.S. assisted Sweden unofficially. It has been known that Swedish military officers received training in the U.S. during this period, and US, the U.S. also provided Sweden with intelligence technology. Sweden was also allowed during this period to buy war material from the Western powers. In 1952, Swedish military leaders won government approval to establish planning contact with the NATO Northern Command. Moreover, a top-secret agreement was signed in 1954 by Sweden with the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand regarding the collaboration and intelligence sharing. In the early 1960s, U.S. nuclear submarines armed with mid-range nuclear missiles were deployed outside of the Swedish west coast. Range and safety considerations made this a good area from which to launch a nuclear strike on Moscow. The submarines had to be very close to the Swedish coast to hit their intended targets, though. As a consequence of this, in 1960, the same year that the submarines were first deployed, the U.S. provided Sweden with a military security guarantee. The U.S. promised to provide military force in aid of Sweden in case of, of a Soviet aggression. This guarantee was kept from the Swedish public until 1994, when a Swedish research commission found evidence for it. 
Only 7,300 select Swedish civilians were kept in the loop over the decades as the head of government, Palm, uh, approved all of the particulars. Of course, he never shared any of this with his critical left-wingers in his Social Democratic Party. Sweden, despite its military strength, couldn't hope to defeat the Soviet Union in a conventional war. Their only possible defense was to hold out against any Soviet attack for a week it would take until NATO could fulfill its security guarantee and fly to their aid in the northern air corridors reserved for such an emergency. One of the main tasks of the Swedish Air Force in the event of a Soviet invasion was to hinder attacks from Soviet anti-submarine flights against NATO submarines with nuclear missiles in the Baltic Sea. It was hoped that the U.S. would use conventional and nuclear weapons to strike at Soviet staging areas in the occupied Baltic states in case of a Soviet attack on Sweden. Swedish jets were packed with state-of-the-art American electronics. There were contingency plans for deploying U.S. Marines to Sweden. Swedish submarines sometimes violated Soviet waters, and NATO submarines had special peacetime lanes that ran partly in Swedish seas, and Swedish officers participated in NATO war games. As part of the military cooperation, the U.S. provided much help in the development of the Saab 37 Vegan as a strong Swedish air force uh, was seen as necessary to keep Soviet anti-submarine aircraft from operating in the missile launch area. In return, Swedish scientists at the Royal Institute of Technology made considerable contributions to enhancing the targeting performance of the Polaris missiles. Ironically, the Kremlin was also in on the secret. It knew all about Stockholm and Helsinki's NATO links, thanks to a Swedish Air Force colonel, Stig Wenserman, who first perfected his trade skill by spying for both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany in World War II. He was convicted of treason by a Swedish court in 1964 and paroled in 1974. He was still alive at the, as the Soviet Union imploded in 1991 and died in obscurity in 2006 at the age of 99. In the end, despite its public image of neutrality, Sweden was a satellite of NATO. It was fully independent on the U.S., just like Norway or Denmark, in the event of a war and had worked closely with NATO to coordinate plans in case of such war. However, just like Norway, it was critical of U.S. involvement in Vietnam and the developing world. Finland, like Sweden, tried to remain neutral in the Cold War, but ultimately was a satellite of the Soviet Union. Finland had constituted the eastern half of Sweden until 1809, when Sweden ceded Finland to Russia. This marked the end of several hundred years of wars between Sweden and Russia for hegemony over the Baltic Sea. Sweden had tried to control its trade routes, while Russia aimed to expand its window to the west. After the Peace of 1809, Finland became the Russian Grand Duchy of Finland until it declared independence shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution. Finland's independence was respected until November 1939 when the Soviet Union attacked Finland. This was a result of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, where eastern Poland, the Baltic states, and Finland constituted territory that fell under the Soviet sphere of influence. Finland, which had declared neutrality following the German invasion of Poland, like the other Nordic countries, found itself in an existential struggle without any possible overt support from the Allies or Sweden. After being forced to sign a peace treaty with the Soviet Union in the spring of 1940, Finland joined sides with Nazi Germany in the late spring of 1941 to try and reclaim the territory it had ceded. 
When the war turned against Germany, Finland once again made peace with the Soviet Union and had to push the German forces out of Finland. Fierce Finnish resistance, their willingness to expel the German troops and give reparations, especially industrial equipment, as well as the less strategic position of the country, all played a role in dampening Stalin's desire for taking all of Finland like he had the Baltic states. The biggest factor, however, was that more Soviet troops were needed to win the race to Berlin and to secure control over Eastern Europe. Thus, Stalin decided to sign an armistice with the Finns, which cleared the way for the development of the post-war status quo. Finland at the time fit neatly into the pattern of Eastern Europe under Soviet pressure. Finland's new prime minister and minister of justice were pro-Soviet, and the minister of the interior and social affairs were leading communists. The head of the state police was also a communist, uh, firmly loyal to the interior minister. A very similar arrangement that we saw in Czechoslovakia and Poland that went communist. The end of World War II had found Finland in a thoroughly weakened state economically. In addition to its human and physical losses, Finland had to deal with more than 400,000 refugees from the territory seized by the Soviets. Reparations were another burden for Finland. From the failure of the reparations demands imposed by the Treaty of Versailles, the Soviets had drawn the lesson that, to be effective, reparations should take the form of deliveries of goods in kind rather than of financial payments. As a result, the Finns were obliged to make deliveries of products, mainly machine goods, cable products, merchant ships, paper, wood pulp, and other wood products. The reparations paid from 1944 to 1952 amounted to an annual average of more than 2% of Finland's gross national product, GMP. The reparations were delivered according to a strict schedule with penalties for late shipments. As the earnestness of the Finns in complying with Soviet demands became apparent, the Soviets re relented somewhat by extending the payment deadline from 1950 to 1952, uh, but they still prevented Finland from participating in the Marshall Plan. The United States did play an important role, though, uh, nonetheless, by mitigating the extension of financial credits of more than 100 million U.S. from its Export-Import Bank to help Finland rebuild its economy and meet its reparations obligations punctually. The Finns turned adversity into advantage by using the industrial capacities created to meet the reparations obligations as the basis for a thriving export trades in those products. As a result, Finland's industrial base acquired greater balance than before. Between, on the one hand, Finland's traditional industries of lumber, wood, pulp, and paper products, and on the other hand, the relatively new industries of shipbuilding and machine production. So why didn't Finland go communist like the rest of Eastern Europe? The Finnish communists were just as loyal to Moscow as their cousins in Eastern Europe. Nevertheless, Stalin and Soviet leadership felt that they already had Finland in their pocket with a friendly government. If you remember from episode 4, from 1945 to 1947, Stalin tolerated mixed governments on his border. Originally, it was believed that nations like Finland and others in Eastern Europe would evolve towards socialism with their democratic and leftist allies. As the socialist parties were bound to win in popularity and in elections in the aftermath of World War II. It wasn't until the Marshall Plan and West German unification that Stalin began to install authoritarian Marxist governments in Eastern Europe. More importantly, violence and disorder within Finland would have disrupted the flow of reparations being delivered to the Soviet Union. So it behooved the Soviets to keep the status quo in Finnish politics. 
The Finns used this time to stabilize their internal politics. Moreover, Finland, unlike other nations of Eastern Europe, was not conquered and occupied by the Red Army. The Communist Party was legalized, and they gained widespread support, but the foundations of Finland's democratic government was intact, and although some communists held leading positions in government, they had not infiltrated the Finnish bureaucracy and military. Hence, the Finnish communists could not as easily overcome their democratic opponents like they did in Czechoslovakia or Hungary. Moreover, when a Finnish communist general strike failed miserably in 1949, Moscow felt that it was was proof that the Finnish Communist Party wasn't strong enough to control the, the country and lacked popular support. Therefore, Moscow agreed to cooperate with the Finnish bourgeois politicians, abandoning the Finnish Communist Party to the political wilderness, but in exchange the Soviets wielded an unofficial veto power over Finland's international foreign policy and even domestic considerations in what became known as Finlandization. Throughout the Cold War, the term uh, Finlandization was used as a term of derision akin to appeasement by politicians and critics in the West. However, both the Soviets and Americans became involved in Finnish domestic politics, engaging with Finnish politicians about domestic politics, providing favors and funds for them. The Soviets working to maintain Finland in the Soviet orbit, and Washington trying to build what little influence it had in the country. The man who oversaw this period was a controversial figure, Kikkonen who served as Prime Minister from 1950 to 1956 and President from 1956 to 1982. Kikkonen began building his personal ties with the Soviets starting in 1943 with Soviet intelligence officers. Kikkonen made many friends within the KGB and Soviet leadership, building friendships with Stalin and later with Khrushchev and Brezhnev. Kikkonen would use these contacts to empower himself and maintain a level of Finnish independence throughout the Cold War. These relationships became very useful to the Americans as well. American presidents and officials often reached out to Kikkonen to understand the Soviet leadership. In his time, Kikkonen probably had something on the order of 40 to 50 meetings with high-level Soviet leaders, whereas the average American president might meet their Soviet counterpart three or maybe four times tops. The United States realized early that there was very little that could be done for Finland. Outside of small, cheap loans, anything more could provoke the Soviets and make Finland's position more difficult. However, by the late 1960s, the United States came to appreciate Finland's moderate neutrality. Other neutral nations, such as Sweden, became to, came to publicly criticize the U.S. over its policies in Vietnam. However, by this time, Kikkonen's foreign policy was being challenged by ambitious young social democrats that wanted to work with the peace movement and help the developing world and move away from the cold-hearted real politique of Kikkonen. Economically, though, Finland played both sides of the Cold War. Extensive bilateral trade with the Soviet Union gave stability to the Finnish economy. For most of the Cold War, trade with the Soviet Union amounted to between 15 to 20 percent of Finnish trade. Finnish industrial goods, many of which were not competitive in the West, were exported to the Soviet Union in exchange for oil, which protected Finland from the energy crises of the 1970s. Nokia is an example of one Finnish company that prospered during the Cold War selling telecommunications equipment to the Soviets. At the same time, Great Britain, despite its gradual decline, remained a major trading partner for Finland throughout the Cold War. Furthermore, EFTA and EEC free trade agreements gave access to Western markets and consumer goods where Finland could sell its raw materials and receive loans. 
Situated between the Soviet Union and Sweden, it was reasoned that Finland too had to develop a welfare state to meet the ideological challenge of the Soviet Union and to remain competitive in the Nordic zone, leading to the development of one of the most advanced welfare states in the world. Militarily, however, both the United States and the Soviet Union contemplated the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons on Finnish uh, territory. American and British bomber formations heading east would have crossed the Finnish, Finland's airspace during the first hours of war between the two blocs. A strategic air command pilot's escape and ev evasion route through Finland to the west was prepared for the eventuality that bombers ran out of fuel or were shot down on the way to or from the Moscow area. The mass use of nuclear weapons against Finland was considered unlikely by Finnish authorities, even though it was known that the Soviet Union's plans called for the dispersal of its aircraft to the airfields of its allies and neighbors, including Finland, as that Finnish airfields were probably included in the U.S. list of bombing targets. By the late 1950s, this Finnish Air Force threat scenarios reflected the possibility of NATO taking out Finnish airfields with nuclear weapons to deny them to the enemy. We now know NATO's battle plans called for the use of large numbers of nuclear weapons against targets in a belt that extended from the Kola via Finland and to the Baltic states and Poland. NATO assumed that Norway was defensible only by using nuclear weapons, and Norwegian generals very much favored this strategy. The general staff of the Norwegian Armed Forces prepared its own target list in 1954 of 367 targets in all, and it also included several nuclear targets in Finland and other surrounding areas. Norwegian F-86F Sabres uh, were prepared to open the way for the bombers through the Finnish airspace, and in 1959, Sabre pilots started to train for dropping nuclear bombs. In the 1960s, NATO's Northern Command produced a list of nuclear targets consisting of naval bases, lines of communication, and the ports in northwestern Russia and along the shores of the Baltic Sea, as well as railroad and road junctions and bridges on the Finnish territory. The bombing of the latter would have delayed the advance of Russian troops. The command also authorized nuclear bombing of targets of opportunity detected from the air during missions. These mobile targets would have been naval units and the enemy's ground forces in Finland or East Germany. It remains unknown in what kind of situation the superpowers would have resorted to their nuclear arsenals. By the mid-1960s, the use of tactical nuclear weapons had become an increasingly remote possibility, despite the fact that the United States had approximately 7,000 stored in Europe. It is unlikely that the U.S. would have used them for purposes other than repelling or preventing an attack against NATO. Intelligence was key to these target lists, and starting at the end of the 1940s, the U.S. intelligence services were actively gathering information about Finland's airfields and their capacities. NATO had a desperate need for up-to-date intelligence on Soviet troops, geography, and infrastructure. So in the beginning of the 1950s, the Norwegian intelligence recruited trained and paid Finnish war veterans. They were sent east across the border with their cameras to observe military bases in Karela, Kola, and the Leningrad area. The CIA and British MI6 financed these activities. Two CIA-trained Finnish agents were even sent flying over the border with a gas balloon. A number of people, nevertheless, were shot or disappeared during these operations. The entire Finnish coastline was photographed from above. All harbors were studied and mapped, as well as roads leading inland. 
Of special interest were the sandy beaches and the flat open coastal landscapes where NATO could launch an amphibious invasion of the nation. They knew that there was no risk involved in taking these photos as the Finnish Air Force was in such a bad shape. There were, however, some reports of fighting above Finnish airspace between U.S. and Soviet aircraft. On the morning of the 8th of May, 1954, only a few minutes apart, two American Boeing RB-47E Stratojet fighters flew into northern Finnish airspace from the east. SAC had sent the planes to photograph military bases in the Soviet Union. The RB-47s were followed and fired at by MiG fighter planes. The Americans were hit, but they also shot back with their guns. Part of the fighting seems to have happened over Finland. However, both sides later denied anything like that had ever happened. Helsinki became one of the major spy cities of the world, like Berlin, Paris, or Mexico City. The Soviets used Finland as a training ground for their newest, newer spies. They could become accustomed to the Western lifestyle. On the other hand, a couple of Soviet spies defected to the West through Finland. Finnish companies often had difficulty in buying technology from the West as well, as often that technology might end up, end up in the hands of the Soviets. The U.S. Embassy had a large and efficient military attaché department, and many of the officers spoke Finnish. A secret report of the Finnish General Staff Counterintelligence Department stated in 1953, quote, One of the main tasks of the Western military attachés is to study our country as a future combat area, which is predicted to become occupied by the Soviet Union and whose reconquest, or at least engaging the troops here, would at some point be possible, close quote. An American attaché, Colonel Jesse Darren, and his aides photographed and measured bridges, roads, and border posts in Lapland in August 1962, uh, exceptionally brazenly, and had to leave the country. Finns were also no less astonished to witness an embassy CIA official march into the Finnish government public works agency and demand what weight of tanks could be cross certain bridges he named. In the 1960s, Finnish military and political re leaders realized that Finnish Lapland was far too weakly defended to stop foreign armies crossing into it. Also, Finnish air defenses urgently needed strengthening and modernizing. The Paris peace treaty that Finland had to sign in 1947 forbid missiles, for example, and set limits to the Finnish Air Force. Moscow conceded in 1961 that Finland could buy anti-aircraft and anti-tank missiles and modern fighter planes as long as the majority of them were from Russia. Soon the British were also eager to sell modern weaponry to the Finns. However, the United States, uh, not a party to the peace treaty, was steadfastly against this and wanted the British also to deny the Finns the right to buy missiles. The Americans were afraid that the Finns would use these missiles against American bombers flying east over Finland and that the Russians might even take over Finnish weapons and control them in a war situation. In a final estimation, Finland remained a quasi-independent state, but at the same time it towed the Soviet line and was a window to the west that benefited the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, culturally and ideologically, Finland was firmly in the Western camp. In conclusion, Scandinavia was a region very much divided by the Cold War, yet all the nations of the region worked to keep the Cold War cold by not antagonizing either of the superpowers and in maintaining the region's relative isolation from other regions of the conflict in the Cold War, like Korea, or the anti-colonial struggles of the period. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 19. 
Check out our next episode coming January the 15th, where we'll be looking at the early Cold War and the two Germanys. We will examine the, the establishment of the GDR and West Germany. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have uh, a lot of friends in the history but still want to help us, give us a positive review on iTunes or the, whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.